Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We'll be in, the, in chapter 19, the first 10 verses of that chapter today. We're walking through a series called Words of Life, where each week we're exploring a scene, as it were, from the life of Jesus or the life of the apostles in the book of Acts, and observing how they engage with unbelief around them. And so we're looking at particular people or groups of people and how Jesus and the apostles engage with these non-believers, seeking to learn for ourselves ways that we might more faithfully and diligently and courageously bear kingdom witness in the world. Jesus has the words of life, and he's entrusted them to us. And so how might we learn and, and glean from these stories? Uh, today we're going to focus on uh, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, where we see the grace of God flow to an unexpected recipient. And I think we're going to see three principles of faithful kingdom witness in this story. So we'll jump right in, but we're going to break up the passage and read it just a verse or two at a time, and we'll talk through it as we go, all right? So Luke 19, verse 1, the story begins. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and we'll stop right there. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, the mention of Jericho here connects the narrative of chapter 19 to the events that came just before. So back in chapter 18, verses 35 through 43, we were told, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, and he healed this blind beggar outside the city and then entered Jericho. Now, Jericho is not his destination. He's not on the way to Jericho. He's just, as it tells us in verse 1, passing through. No, his destination is Jerusalem. He is on his way to be delivered up into the hands of sinners, wrongfully condemned, and crucified. And this has been his destination since he set his face to Jerusalem all the way back in Luke 9, verse 51. This is his divine mission. Jericho is just a stop on the road to Jerusalem. But in God's providence and mercy, Jesus has an appointment to keep in Jericho. And so we continue in verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Four things that we're told about Zacchaeus in these verses. Number one, he is Jewish. We know that just because Zacchaeus is a Jewish name, a common Jewish name at that time. We learn that he is a tax collector, and we learn that he is a ruler of tax collectors, a chief tax collector, and that probably because of that occupation, he is rich. Now, there's more that we'll come to see about Zacchaeus and implications of all of those facts as we go through the story. But we're told right up front as the story begins, we are dealing here with a Jewish rich chief of tax collectors. So that's who Jesus is coming to meet. Here's something else we learn about Zacchaeus in verse 3 and 4. He is curious. He is seeking to see Jesus. Look in verse 3. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but 
on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So Zacchaeus plans ahead. He hears Jesus is coming to town. He probably can see the crowd and where they're gathered, and he knows the path. And so he picks an angle and identifies a sycamore tree down the way and runs to the tree to position himself to see the Lord. He worked for this. I don't know the last time he tried to climb a tree, but it's not that easy to do. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. How many of you remember that song? All right. Those were the good old days, weren't they? Also note, Zacchaeus, as we'll find more clearly, is hated by the people. So the crowd are not a crowd of friends to Zacchaeus. And so the crowd here uh, sets itself between Zacchaeus and Jesus where he's trying to get. He can't just walk among the crowd to see Jesus. He has to work around them somehow because they're in his way. And indeed, they are not friendly to him, as we'll come to understand. And so here... Uh, we find that uh, the crowd is not irrelevant to the story. They have made themselves an opponent of Zacchaeus and his quest to see Jesus, to see who Jesus was specifically. So he has planned ahead. He's identified a tree. He has climbed up into this tree to make himself, I guess, more obvious to Jesus as he passes by. Uh, probably made a little bit of a fool of himself in doing that, I imagine. And now what happens next, verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay in your house today. Principle number one, kingdom witness courageously befriends the friendless. Kingdom witness courageously befriends the friendless. We'll find that Jesus earns his own grumblers and complaints by this very action. Kingdom witness courageously befriends the friendless. So Jesus has drawn near to the place where Zacchaeus is in this tree. He looks up and he calls him by name. I, I assume he knows his name because he's the son of God, and it's been miraculously given to him. And so he knows who he is, and he calls him by name, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. There's that must again. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we have that, that word that Jesus must do something, or he had to pass through. We're often dealing not with the, the, just the, the consequences of what was available to him, we're dealing with his divine mission. I must stay at your house today. Why? Because this is where I'm appointed to be. You are who I'm appointed to meet with. So now it's a good time to talk about why Zacchaeus doesn't have many friends. He was a tax collector, we learned earlier, and a chief tax collector, a ruler of tax collectors. Fact number one, Jews hated tax collectors. Now, probably Nobody is really super excited about tax collectors, 
but I imagine if you took your feelings for the Internal Revenue Service and multiplied it by about a thousand, you'd have a sense of how the Jewish people felt about this class of people, these tax collectors. See, at the time, Israel was under Roman occupation, which meant that Jews, along with everybody else, had to pay their taxes to Rome. Now, the Jews believed that, probably rightly, that the Roman occupation was a judgment of God for their sin. And so they were looking for a day when their Messiah, the long-promised, long long-prophesied Messiah, would come, and they envisioned that he would kick out the Romans, lead some military revolution, and hand the land back to the Jewish people. That's, of course, not exactly what God had in mind for his Messiah to do, at least not in that way and in that time. Nevertheless, they are looking for this Messiah, and they hate Rome, and they're under oppression and having to pay taxes to Rome. And Rome actually employed Jewish people to collect taxes among their own, rather than them having to go among this, this uh, group of people and kind of find their own uh, or do their own work. They hired Jews to be the tax collectors among the Jews. And so these tax collectors are not just people who take your money, they're also your own people who are betraying the very value and identity of what it means to be a Jew, right? So these are traitors. You are working against God's people for the enemy of God's people, and you're doing so by taking our money that we don't really want to give to them. That is how the Jews regarded these tax collectors, especially the ones who were Jewish and taking taxes from their own people. It was not thought of with warmth and fondness, as you might imagine. Now, add to that the fact that many of these tax collectors were greedy and corrupt, and the system of Roman taxation gave these tax collectors something of a license to uh, basically gather as much as they wanted. There was a certain amount that was required as a tax, but the practice of these tax collectors was often to demand more than what was their fair share And so you've got these people who are traitors to their people, instruments of the devil, personally defrauding them and robbing them of their rightful possessions, and that is the social status of Zacchaeus, who's not just a tax collector, but a boss among tax collectors. So he gets the share of all of these various tax collectors who work under him. He's probably collecting a little tax from each one of them. And so he has gotten rich on the backs of the Jewish people. Do you understand why? He doesn't have many friends. And that social status is seen very clearly in the grumbling of the crowd down in verse 7, where they say, he, has, he of Jesus, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now that complaint is against Jesus. But the whole premise of the complaint is, how dare he give this man, this sinner, this tax collector, the time of day? Jesus obviously knows all this. He doesn't go to Zacchaeus' house and then learn that he's a tax collector and that the people hate him. Oh, no, I've come to the wrong house. He knows this. Despite Zacchaeus' bad reputation and the animosity he receives from virtually everyone else, with this simple gesture, Jesus shows him honor, respect, friendship. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
And I say that befriending the friendless is courageous because Jesus knows what he's going to incur from these crowds and from the religious leaders by befriending one such as this. And he does it anyway. Look at verse 6 for Zacchaeus' response. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. The verbs there that tell us Zacchaeus' actions match exactly the verbs that Jesus commanded him to do. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. So he hurried and came down. He did exactly what Jesus said right away and received him with joy. He wasn't like, oh no, my house is a mess. What am I going to do? This guy's invited himself over. I don't have time for this. Now I've got to go tell the wife. She's going to be mad at me. He receives him immediately with joy because he recognizes this and receives this as the gift of friendship. This is a rabbi, a respected teacher. Now, obviously, one who is not without his enemies and opponents, but a respected rabbi is coming to my house. This is an extreme honor for Zacchaeus. I imagine Zacchaeus had never had anybody of nobility or importance in his house before. Most people avoided him like the plague. He hasn't had time to prepare for this. His family members don't know that company is coming, but then in walks Jesus of Nazareth. Who is Jesus asking you to befriend? Who are the outcasts, the misfits, that people tend to ignore or even avoid? To whom the Lord may be calling you to draw near. Kingdom witness courageously befriends the friendless. We don't have any details recorded about Jesus' conversation with Zacchaeus until the very end of it, what I presume is the end of it. He goes into his house in verse 6, says Zacchaeus received him joyfully. And we see the crowd's grumbling response in verse 7. When they saw it, they grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. They're outraged at Jesus for going, for going into this man's house. And then we cut to, presumably, later in the discussion where we witness a change in Zacchaeus. So look down in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here's the second principle that I draw from this. Kingdom witness requires a call to repentance. Kingdom witness requires a call to repentance. Now, I'm reading between the lines a bit here since we don't have any record of what Jesus said to Zacchaeus during this visit up to this point. But Zacchaeus' response to Jesus' initiative and friendship demonstrates a heart of repentance, which itself gives evidence of saving faith. So let's consider for a moment how Zacchaeus appears to be transformed by the presence of Jesus. So remember his declaration in verse 8, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. If we were to walk back in the Gospel of Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 3, we'd find John the Baptist preaching to a crowd of people who'd come out to be baptized. 
In fact, go ahead and turn to Luke 3 with me. I think it'll be helpful. Luke chapter 3. Now, in verse 8 of Luke 3, as John is preaching to this crowd, he urges them this way, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So John here is telling this Jewish audience who've come to him for baptism, don't assume that just because you're a Jew, that is, you have been born into the lineage of Abraham, that you're good to go. Because that's not what this is about. That what marks the kingdom of God is not a physical lineage, what marks the kingdom of God is what he says in verse 8, in the fruits in keeping with repentance. So he's preaching a bit of a different message than they're used to hearing. Don't assume that you're okay just because you're a son of Abraham. You should be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And then people start asking questions about what that looks like. So in verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Okay, so how do we bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What what does that require of us? And so he answers them in verse 11. Whoever has two tunics, share it with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. All right? So in other words, give half of your goods to the poor. That's what he says to that crowd about what living in keeping with repentance looks like. Give half of what you have to the poor. And then in verse 12, this is interesting, tax collectors are among this group. And the tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? A little bit like, okay, I know you were talking to the crowd about what they should do, but what about us? We're tax collectors, right? This is way worse for us. What what does repentance look like on our part? Look at what he says to them in verse 13. He said to them, Collect no more than you were authorized to do. Why would he have to say that? Well, Because tax collectors often collect more than they're authorized to collect. What is repentance? What is the fruit in keeping with repentance look like on the part of tax collectors? Be honest. Do your work. Don't extort people, right? I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. Verse 14, soldiers ask him, what should we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. In other words, don't use your position of power to bully people or to force things from them, right? So we start to get the picture that like the fruit in keeping with repentance might look slightly different depending on your station in life or your occupation or, or whatever. But consistently, being in the physical lineage of Abraham isn't good enough, right? That's not the basis of life in the kingdom of God. The basis of life in the kingdom of God is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, Going back to Luke 19, look at what Jesus, uh, what Zacchaeus said in verse 8, just as a reminder. Behold, half of my goods I give to the poor. Isn't that what John said? If I've defrauded anyone, that is, if I've cheated somebody and gotten more than I should have, I'm going to restore it fourfold. Not only take no more than he's authorized, like John told him, but actually to give back four times the amount that he took. What's he doing? He's bearing the fruit of repentance. 
That's what we see here in Zacchaeus. He's repenting of the wicked ways, the selfish, greedy ways that he has gone about his work as a tax collector. His encounter with Jesus has changed his heart, changed his life. And now he doesn't want all the riches that he's greedily accumulated for himself. He suddenly wants to do what's right. He suddenly wants to do what pleases God. That's a new heart. That's repentance. How does Jesus regard this apparent change in Zacchaeus? Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. There we go, back to John's statements about being children of Abraham. It's not about physical lineage. It's about bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. Jesus sees Zacchaeus' turn around here. I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. I'm going to make good on what I've stolen and actually above that by four times. And Jesus says, now you're living like a son of Abraham. What does that mean? You're repenting. You're bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. And so Jesus declares salvation has come to this house today. You see, under the new covenant in Christ, the son of Abraham is not merely somebody who has the physical lineage or the the birth certificate to prove that he's a son of Abraham. It is someone who displays the fruit of faith in Christ and the repentance that accompanies it. Though Zacchaeus was a Jew already, it is today that he truly becomes a son of Abraham. Because his acts of repentance reveal the presence of a saving trust in his Lord. Our proclamation of the gospel must include not only information about the life that Jesus offers, but exhortations about the sin that must be left behind in order to follow him. Our announcement of the kingdom that will endure forever must be accompanied by warnings concerning the kingdom that's passing away. So kingdom witness, I lost it. kingdom witness requires a call to repentance. Well, we met Zacchaeus as a man who was seeking to see who Jesus was. So there was some curiosity, some inclination to know about Jesus. But we learn in verse 10 who was the real seeker. In all of this, look at verse 10. After he said, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. It was for this reason that he needed to pass through Jericho. It was for this reason that he stopped at a certain tree and looked up. It was for this reason that he had said to Zacchaeus, I must go to your house. You see, you were seeking me, Zacchaeus, but the deeper reality is I was seeking you first. And today is the day that I found you. Today is the day of your salvation. So here's principle number three. Kingdom witness intentionally seeks out the lost. Kingdom witness intentionally seeks out the lost. 
I use the word lost here because Jesus used it in Luke 19.10. I don't know that it's always the most helpful term to refer to somebody who does not yet believe in Christ, but in certain contexts, I think it is relevant. And certainly Jesus sees, as he's relating to Zacchaeus here, you were lost and I have come to find you. That is the mission of Jesus. And if that's Jesus' mission, it's our mission. Listen to John Calvin on this, this uh, about Zacchaeus. He says, It was not without a heavenly inspiration that he, that is Zacchaeus, desired so earnestly to get a sight of Christ. The event showed that the mind of Zacchaeus contained some seed of piety. In this manner, before revealing himself to men, the Lord frequently communicates to them a secret desire by which they are led to him, while he is still concealed and unknown. And though they have no fixed object in view, he does not disappoint them, but manifests himself in due time. So the fact that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was tells us that Jesus was doing something in Zacchaeus first. And we know that he's still seeking out sinners to save because Jesus hasn't returned yet, right? The church is still here, still entrusted with the gospel of the kingdom, the marching orders of the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations. Just a quick overview of Jesus' mission in the Gospel of Luke paints this picture unavoidably. Back in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, Jesus is baptized. That's the beginning of his public ministry, right? So kind of the first thing that people in public would have seen of Jesus is that he is being baptized by John the Baptist. Then, right after that, in Luke 4, 1 to 13, he goes into the wilderness. He's driven there by the Holy Spirit, interestingly, to be tempted by the devil. And then when he comes out of that temptation, he's been baptized, he's been tempted and withstood that temptation. The very first thing that Luke records about what Jesus does in his public ministry is in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, has entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's going to start reading the Bible. Look at what he reads. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mind blown. This prophecy of Isaiah about the opening the eyes of the blind and setting captives free and setting free the oppressed. It's fulfilled today in your hearing, says Jesus. Why? Because he is the one that was prophesied. He is the one whose mission is to go into the world and find the lost, the broken, the scattered, the oppressed sheep that belong to him and gather them. This is what Jesus is doing. And the rest of Luke's gospel is just an unfolding of that mission statement. It's Jesus healing crippled people, giving sight to blind men, uh, giving acceptance and dignity to outcasts and rejects like Zacchaeus. 
This is who Jesus is after. That's the heart of God and the mission of Jesus summed up. And if Jesus is on this seek and save mission throughout the world, then so should we. We should be on the lookout for people in need of God's grace and ready with the message of the only gospel that's able to save sinners. Kingdom witness intentionally seeks out the lost. Zacchaeus is just one example of untold millions who have been brought near by kindness and redeemed by grace. Untold millions of outcasts and rejects who have been welcomed and accepted. Millions of broken people restored. Millions of fallen sinners redeemed. Untold millions of sinners sought out and found by the seeking Savior. I wonder which character in the story you identify with. Are you like Zacchaeus, drawn to the things of God, desperate to see who Jesus is, but never having received him with joy? Today could be the day of salvation. Turn to him. Call upon him. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Are you like the grumbling crowd, incensed at the notion that God might grant mercy and pardon to tax collectors in your life? Who do you deem to be too far gone, too low to be recipients the grace of Jesus? Or are you like the seeking Savior, heart willing and eyes open to opportunities to draw near those who may be on the brink of salvation and are simply in need of that divine appointment to make it a reality? Don't be surprised. The Lord may be at work in some of the most unlikely places. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus. We thank you that you have looked upon us in our captivity, in our bondage, and you sent the seeking Savior after us to set us free, to make us new. We pray, Lord, that you would equip us and send us out as your people indwelt by your Spirit to carry out the very same mission that Jesus carried out while he was on this earth and the mission that he's entrusted to his church today to go into all the world to preach the gospel to the whole creation to seek and to save the lost we praise you that you save sinners and so the message that we have to give is never without hope it has the power to save. We pray that you would be pleased to bring us into the lives of those who need to hear this gospel hope and to bring sinners to repentance and faith in Christ through our faithful, courageous kingdom witness. Build your church 
for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.